Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Kochav Shachal, or as she suggested, Nijmi, an un-Zionist Jewish woman from Palestine. She refused to serve in the Israeli occupation army, a human rights activist, and an activist against colonialism, apartheid, and oppression. Um, she works on escorting Palestinian shepherds communities in the occupied West Bank. Uh, she's also the educational coordinator in combatants for peace. Kochav Nijmi. I was wondering, first of all, actually, I want to thank you for agreeing to be interviewed and telling us your story and sharing, you know, your your insight and then your your uh, journey towards peace activism or justice activism. My first question is for you to kind of elaborate on your background. Tell us more about who you are and how you came to be the person you are and the work you're doing. Well, thank you, Anwar. First of all, it's absolutely my pleasure. Um, yes, so I'm Kuchav Shachar, or Nijme in Arabic. I was born in Tel Aviv. I say Tel Aviv, but usually I say I was born in Palestine because I mean um, the Palestinian land. Um, I grew up in a very Zionist surrounding, a very Zionist family, national, right wing. This was my surrounding. Um, I grew up, you know, with those phrases of, um, we must defend ourselves. Um, we have no other choice. Uh, we want peace. They don't. We just have no choice uh, except uh, fighting and defend ourselves. The Holocaust was very, very present in my house as well. Many members of my family from my mother's side have died in the Holocaust. And I also have a Moroccan side. So they also suffered from the Nazis as well, to be honest. So my house was very full, I'll say, with Jewish and the family history. Um, so Kochav, I read your bio as you sent it to me, and I found it very fascinating because you're using a lot of terms that they're not taken for granted, right? For Jewish, Jewish Israelis, uh, for instance, you say, I am a non-Zionist Jewish woman from Palestine. And I think at least, like even this one sentence uh, requires a lot of discussion, requires kind of uh, paying more attention to it. So why do you think it's important for you to label yourself as a non-Zionist Jewish woman from Palestine, even though technically you have an Israeli citizenship? Yes, of course. No, I, I have an Israeli citizenship and I'm absolutely the privileged uh, woman in the situation. I'm not the most privileged because I am still a woman and not a, a man. But yeah, I'm obviously the white person in this apartheid. I have all the Israeli uh, privileges, but I'm just, I'm not willing to identify as an Israeli. In general, I don't connect a lot to the idea of nationalism, but in this case, I, I truly don't really have a nationality. I mean, I feel like everybody is forcing this definition on me, like you are an Israeli, and you are an Israeli, and you are an Israeli. I feel like everybody forcing it, while I, I don't really feel connected to this Israeli identity um, that most people 
refer to. I see myself as so many other things before I'm Israeli, I'm Moroccan, I'm Jewish, you know, I'm a woman, but when we talk about Israeli, I, I mean, I don't know. And I, I usually, I like to say that I was born in Palestine because I see this land as one. I don't see any, you know, non-green lines or whatsoever. And it doesn't really matter if its name is Israel, Palestine, Kna'an, or um, <laughs> Levant. I, I, you know, I, it doesn't really, it's not really important. But at the moment, because of the political situation and all, I prefer to use um, in a name that was given by the Greeks many, 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 many years ago, because it's just the name that was uh, known uh, for this land. Now, as for a non-Zionist Jew or an anti-Zionist Jew, I'm a radical person. And I think we should really look and speak about stuff the way they are. Now, the reason I'm talking a lot about Zionism is because this is also the oppression that I experience. And, and this is how I see it. I mean, the first day I asked myself, what is Zionism? I literally Googled the word Zionism because I understood I don't really know what it is. I always thought I'm a Zionist. I was taught to be a Zionist. Everything I learned, obviously, from day one, since kindergarten and in elementary school, high school, and so on, was from a Zionist narrative, you know? But I never understood what it truly means. Until one day, I, I wanted to, I was like, wait, I don't really know what Zionism is. And then I literally Googled it, I read it, and I was like, what? Oh, no, 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 I don't <laughs> believe in that. <laughs> and ever since, of course, I learned much more about Zionism and the history of this land and so on. And, and I came to my own um, ideology and opinion and perspective. So, yes, I am not a Zionist. I'm against Zionism. I think it's a radical ideology of supremacy. And of course, I'm against every type of oppression and every type of supremacy, whether it's uh, an oppression that is being committed against Jews, uh, for, like anti-Semitism, for example, or whether it's oppression that is being committed by Zionist Jews. Um, so I will be against every type of oppression. And I see Zionism as a part of oppression, a very Western white patriarchal uh, kind of uh, oppression, yeah. Wow, thank you. That's um, actually very fascinating. I think you mentioned something that is very important about identities and definitions that, you know, we kind of identify certain ways because we grew up thinking that we are this way and we believe in a certain way. But when we start doing research and kind of exploring and questioning those labels that our parents passed on to us or society passed on to us, we sometimes come to the conclusion that we do not agree with that. And another thing that I found fascinating in your discussion is how you address the intersectionality of identities and intersectionality of oppression, right? So you mentioned that you're a woman who's experiencing sexism, but you know, you're still white. So there's the privileged element. And as a Palestinian, you know, you can be a woman. Uh, who is being oppressed by the occupation, who is also facing patri patriarchal forces at the family level, as well as the state level, as the occupation level, right? So intersectionality of oppression is an important element that we all need to address. And it's very, um, uh, it's a very key concept in kind of 
understanding activism, right? And uh, how to achieve justice. Now, the other question I have for you, and I think is fascinating. Um, Although, so Anwar, if I can add, if mm -hmm. I can add, that I feel like in the past, I, I, I feel like I moved mentally from Israel to Palestine. I'm actually mm -hmm. also uh, writing something about it, but, but it's true because as a young girl, I never heard the word uh, Palestine, Palestinians, Nakba occupation, and so on. You know, I never heard about it. Nobody speaks about it, you know? So I, I, I felt like, yes, I'm living in Israel and I'm an Israeli, but this is just because I didn't know anything else. Only when I grew up and my opened my eyes, my eyes and, and you know, they were just widely open and then I saw everything. And then I was like, okay, something is happening here. You know, it was a long way, but the whole decolonizing process, which will always continue because it, it's, it's a never ending process, you know? I start here in my own town, in my own city, in this land, but then it goes to the whole world. Um, this is what helps me to understand and really learn and view the Palestinian narrative as well. This is why now I see this land as Palestine. Um, this is why I feel like I moved mentally from Israel to Palestine, although I never changed the place or the land I'm living at. Yeah, I just thought maybe I'll add it. No, that's, a, that's an excellent addition, moving mentally instead of physically, because you're occupying the same space, but with different understanding of your context and your relationship to that space and time. I, I think that's a fascinating point. Um, so talking about kind of your identity as Moroccan, the fact that you speak, you speak Arabic, how do you think you understanding your ties to Morocco, as well as your ability to learn, or your, you actually sought to learn Arabic, your ability to speak Arabic helped shape your activism and your perception of what's happening on, in Palestine and kind of oppression in your own context. Yeah, so first of all, I'll say that, um, so I'm also Moroccan and also Polish. I have a grandfather from Argentina, but I know his family ran away escaped from Portugal to Poland and from Poland to Argentina. Anyway, I'm very, very mixed <laughs> as many Jews. The Moroccan side is without a doubt the side I felt the most uh, growing up, uh, whether we are talking about the, the food, the cuisine, the traditional uh, mimona, henna, and you know, the, this Arab, Jewish Arab culture. Um, and also I liked it the most because the food is uh, much better. <laughs> now, to be honest, I, I, I haven't uh, learned Arabic. Uh, I mean, nobody spoke Arabic at home. Uh, my grandmother from Morocco, she, she cursed in Arabic, <laughs> but she spoke uh, mostly French. <laughs> um, but it was actually many years ago when I was uh, in high school, I wanted to learn Arabic and I decided to make it my major. So I went and learned Arabic for five years, and then I wanted to quit because I, I and, and I remember this conversation with my uh, uh, manager, I told her I want to quit because I don't know how to speak Arabic. I've been learning Arabic for five years and I'm going outside and I cannot 
speak with anyone around me. They, they only taught us uh, how to be good at intelligence, for example, mm -hmm. in the occupation army or how to, to read news and to go over codes and stuff like that. So what happened afterwards is that I, I had my, uh, I, I could read and write from high school, yeah, but I couldn't speak. So last year, like a year and a half ago, when there was the first lockdown of uh, COVID-19 situation, I just sat down for five or six hours every day and decide, and learned Arabic Amiye. And I, I learned how to speak the, the language of the street, the, what Love the people you. speak. Yes, exactly. So I did that. And then uh, when I started the human rights activity and started to escort Palestinian uh, shepherds community in the West Bank. So these communities, they had no English or Hebrew, they just knew Arabic. So I had to talk and it really helped because this is, this is how I uh, started to practice my Arabic on, on almost a weekly uh, basis. So at the beginning, I was also speaking very similar to their accent, to be honest. Um, so that and nowadays, I feel like I'm speaking in many different accents. But yeah, so now I speak Arabic and it helps me so much because, I mean, it's amazing way to communicate. I mean, I obviously understand that people would not want to speak in the colonizer language. So I should speak the indigenous language. And this is another part of my decolonizing process to learn the, the local language, which will be Arabic. I mean, we're living in the Middle East or Southwest Asia, Levant, whatever. So it's Arabic. Yeah, and I think, you know, as somebody who speaks English, Arabic and Hebrew, I understand for me uh, the power of language. And, you know, like when you read the news, and I don't know if you tried this exercise before, like if you need news coverage about an event in Arabic versus in Hebrew versus in English, you see lots of differences and you see how language shapes the perception of the people who are oh, reading wow. it in that language. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating, um, especially with Israel downgrading Arabic, you know, to uh, what is it, special status language mm -hmm. instead of um, an official language. And not really, even like the signs, they don't represent the true names, the local names mm -hmm. of towns are not written right. That, you know, like, I feel like the first thing a Jewish, or I remember the first thing a Jewish guy said to me when I was in college, he was trying to be friendly. He said, right? So there's the Arabic that, um, oh my God. <laughs> you, you know, they learn in the military and it's all like, stop where I'm going to shoot you or like, like show me your ID, kind of this part. So language also becomes a tool of oppression and occupation, right? And it also shapes perception. Yeah. It's a, it's a weapon in itself. Uh, yes, absolutely. And they use it to just to change the, the reality. I mean, to be honest, it's like many, many of the news that we see on social media, I usually know about it um, right away from groups and text messages and from my activism. But then I see it, how it's getting published in Hebrew, English or Arabic, and it's just wow the distance is so big it's just it's just so different and to be honest most of the times the arabic or the palestinian uh, source will just present the occasion as it is 
while the, while you will read it in Hebrew and just it will just be something completely else and, and misleading and it's just it's a very very big problem and in general also the western media and also the bbc i mean you could see the, the, the what they wrote about uh, yesterday about the shrine in sheikh jarrah mm -hmm. they they wrote something um palestinians uh, um reject and offer uh, uh, to keep their uh, to cancel their evic eviction or something like that mm -hmm. like something completely not related and un un yeah, and I think Muhammad Al-Qurd corrected that. I think Muhammad Al-Qurd corrected that and he said they refused to give away their rights to their homeland or something like that. I forget. Oh, what yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think he was also, and I noticed that you said in your bio that I read that you refused to serve in the Israeli occupation army instead of the Israel, Israeli defense forces, right, the IDF. And I think yeah. Muhammad also argued the same thing, that you shouldn't call them defense forces, their occupation army. And that's when we talk about language as well, right, and representation of what's happening. Is it defense or occupation? Um, and it is very important. Yeah, well, that's a very, I mean, for, for me using this term is because I believe today that 80% of the army uh, jobs or, 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 or actions is in order to control and oppress the Palestinian people, especially when we're talking about the West Bank. I mean, this is just in order to control and oppress the people and, and take their freedom, freedom of movement, freedom of thinking. I mean, it's just crazy. I don't believe that what is happening um, in Hebron, for example, let's take what happened uh, two uh, days ago when the occupation army murdered an 11 years old kid with absolutely no reason, absolutely no reason. Also, even the army didn't have an excuse for this murder, yeah? Mm -hmm. They said they're checking the, the, the possibility that the kid uh, was killed. It's, <laughs> You know, it's it's ridiculous. So anyway, uh, when, when we see that, and then we see what the what the occupation army did at the funeral, when people just want to bury this kid, this child, their reaction it was just irrational. So when the, so when people tell me, oh, those soldiers are over there in the West Bank, so you can sit in Tel Aviv, crap. Thank you. You know. I, no, no, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I did. I, I don't believe it's it's an only defense force. Okay, it's it's not the case, especially not with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. It's in order to occupy, oppress, control, steal, and ethnically cleanse. This is another tool, and it's not just the occupation army. It's every Israeli force. I mean, you it, you have so many security forces here and they're all colonial and acting like colonial you know mm -hmm. colonial police and colonial i mean it's just the tools of the state in order to annex more and more land like annex de facto not even if they're not saying that this this is what they do when you see when you look at the field this is what is happening mm -hmm. This is fascinating. So I want to move us to kind of your definition of your activism. So I initially before the podcast, when I mentioned peace activists, you told me 
uh, and it's not an on record, so I'm kind of giving the background to the listeners. You said we need to change peace activists to something that includes justice, right? So I was wondering if you could uh, kind of define peace activism to me and kind of what does a peaceful resolution to, to what's happening on the ground look like to you? Well, to be honest, it's not that I'm, um, it's just that when we say I'm a peace activist or uh, I want peace or let's fight for peace, it's great and amazing. And yes, of course, I'm also a peace activist, a hundred percent, obviously. But before we're talking about peace, we need to be justice activists because we can only after we will achieve justice we will be able to start talking about peace and co coexistence but right now i think we are at the level of co-resistance and uh, taking our responsibility and and make justice because i mean it, it cannot go the other way around we must have justice in order to have peace i mean if not it's uh, i mean we, there is no other way so this is why I, I, I'm, I don't like the term so much because it, I also, many, many times, I feel like many, many uh, people, especially Israelis tell me, yes, you know, of course, I also want peace. Uh, we all want peace. Uh, they don't want peace, but it's not just, yeah, okay, let's live in peace and let's coexist, not build, yeah, but while you are living under Jewish supremacy apartheid regime. This is not peace. And I will never agree to that kind of peace. So this is why I'm trying to speak about more to speak more about justice at first mm -hmm. and then peace. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it's a fascinating point to make. So what do you think is the resolution to the violence on the ground? Okay. First of all, I will start by saying that I am a huge believer on of uh, nonviolence resistance. I, I believe in nonviolence because of many reasons. First of all, I don't believe in using the oppressor tools and, and I believe it's better for, for ourselves, first of all, and we, we can first take control about the, the violence that we're making. Now, I, I'm also aware to the fact that I'm very privileged and it's very, very easy for me to say uh, nonviolent uh, resistance, you know? it's easier to, for Israelis to say that now. Um, from the other side, I will tell you what I don't get. When people tell me, but look, but uh, there are terror attacks or Hamas is shooting at us or, or uh, look, they, 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 they're doing that and that and that and showing me um, examples of what they call terror, then I will ask them in the other way around, but why do they do that? What is happening? It's not like it's from no reason. I mean, when you occupy and when you oppress people, they will resist. Nobody is, uh, is uh, saying anything or about the resistance that took part in uh, Warsaw, Warsaw in the Holocaust, right? I mean, we're not talking about this kind of resistance because it was understood, right? So this is the case here. When people are oppressed, they will resist. No, no oppression, no resistance. I mean, this is what I believe, like this is how it works. How to solve it will be to just end this oppression, to end this apartheid. Before that, I, I mean, 
I don't have all the answers, but I do, I do want people to understand that when they talk about the Palestinian violence, they never talk about the Israeli violence. And Israeli violence is much, much bigger. There is no two sides situation here. The two sides aren't equal in any way. So we cannot say, okay, we just need the two sides to talk. No, it's not, it's not two sides as if they are equal. I mean, Israel must stop uh, its violence and then we can discuss all the rest. Um, so I have a question that is more specific to the organizations you work with. So you work right now with Combatant for Peace um, as an educational coordinator. Could you tell me more about your role with the organization? Why do you like the organization? And how do you think, how does it fulfill your vision of a just and peaceful uh, resolution? Yes, so, so Combatants for Peace. Well, first of all, I will have to say that uh, thanks to Suleiman Khatib and Khatib, uh, I was brought into this movement. And I took a very a big step in, and today I am the educational coordinator. Now, what I mostly do is to produce um, seminars for Israeli education sector in order to learn about the Palestinian narrative, about military occupation, about the, the Palestinian struggle, yeah? I mean, this is in order for them to take this knowledge and pass it forward to the next generation. We also meet youth, Israeli youth or Palestinian youth. Uh, we have this program about, um, it's called Challenging Militarism, which is talking about the influences of militantic surrounding, about the psychological influences, uh, who profits from the situation, and so on, yeah? So mm -hmm. more or less, I would say that I really believe that through education, this is, this is a way to change the next, the next Israeli generation because from the formal education, hmm, I don't have a lot of hope. I mean, I remember myself in high school, nobody's talking with me about Nakba, Palestinians. Okay, I mean, it was not uh, very talkable. Uh, especially not about the history, yeah? So mm -hmm. this is a way to provide um, some information. Now, when we're having um, the combatants combatant, uh, for peace meeting, it's, for example, we meet a group of youth and we have an Israeli activist and a Palestinian activist, and mm -hmm. then they both share their personal story and they're talking about the movement and how it was created and we give them some time um, for questions. Now, this is such a special moment always because many, 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 many times this will be the first time ever for an Israeli kid or youth to meet a Palestinian, especially mm -hmm. from the West Bank, you know? So every time it's just amazing to see the reactions and the connections because as I said uh, uh, before about the mental, like uh, how I move mentally, you know, the occupation and the whole system and the oppression, is, it's right here, you know, it's right next to, to everyone. It could be 15 minutes away, 10 minutes away, two hours drive, whatever. But mentally, it's so far away. People mm -hmm. have no idea and, and everybody are also being educated to, to, to fear and hate. 
So when you they meet a, a very nice Palestinian just and just talking, you know, it's sometimes it's it's it just breaks these these walls that are that were built by this system in our brains by the Zionist system. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, and I think you make a lot. I, I like you continue mentioning how the mental, even though like physically the occupation is right there right in front of you mentally it's far away everywhere <laughs> yeah and i think that's fascinating to kind of think about in that way um so could you tell me more about your work with the shepherds why are you guys doing it what kind of threats are the shepherds facing why do they need protection yes absolutely so I hope that our audience knows where is the occupied West Bank and what's the ABC areas. Mm -hmm. Now, Palestinian shepherds communities that I'm escorting are, are living in the sea area. So it means that they are under the Israeli, uh, I mean, it's anyway, all, all the land is controlled by Israeli regime, uh, by the Israeli regime, but but they are also in, uh, let's say, under the responsibility of the Israeli regime. So, so they are experiencing a military regime. That's one. The other thing that they're facing, except all the general oppression, is the settler violence. So, what is happening to these communities? For the past uh, years, uh, you know, you have more and more settlements and more and more illegal outposts, and and the space for the shepherd communities to walk with their animals is getting smaller and smaller. Because mm -hmm. when they go next to a settlement, settlers come and just attacking them. And if it's not the settle the settlers, um, it will be uh, soldiers that are coming to deportate them now. You can just go to 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 Betselem and to their website. You can see so much uh, videos and and people who documented these moments of settler violence. Now, it's it's just it's crazy. I mean, you know, I will divide it for two. I will first speak about the settler violence and then the soldiers. But settler violence, they're they're coming. They're throwing stones. They have guns. They shoot live fire. They stabbed a donkey not long ago. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's just crazy what is happening for people who are just living their way of life. This is one thing. Now, in general, you should read and be aware of the settler violence that is happening. I mean, a month uh, and a half ago, um, Ismail Tubasti was murdered by settlers. He was shot in the head and it's a horrible story. It happened in Safriyata uh, Mantaka. It's in South um, Hebron Hills. Now, as for the soldiers, they're coming and then they're like uh, telling the shepherds to go away. And they're coming and with their weapons and everything. They're speaking in their language and not in Arabic. And they're just deporting the Palestinian shepherds, telling them, no, you cannot walk here. And while I'm there, I can use my privileges since I cannot give my privileges, at least I can use it. And then I, I'm talking with the soldiers. Now I'm asking, do you have an order? Show me an order saying they cannot walk here. And then they don't have an order. I'm like, okay, so show me the map. No, I don't have the map, I don't have that. And then I argue with them because unlike Palestinians, I do have rights. And the chances 
that I will they that they will just take me and cover my eyes and leave me on the ground for a few hours is very very small. Palestinians don't have this privilege, I guess. Um, so I I will just show them why it's wrong. It's just doesn't make any sense to deportate them. Now, many times the, the answers I got from the soldiers were, um, this land belonged to this guy, to, to this uh, Omel from this uh, farm. And I'm like, but this is an, it, it's an illegal outpost. Uh, no, yeah, but uh, they cannot work here. And I'm like, okay, so when you show me the document, I will leave. Or other times uh, I, I once asked some soldiers, you know, they were so young, they looked 14, they were probably 18 or something. I was like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like, really, what, why did you came? And then one of them said, uh, Omar doesn't like when, this, when the ships are, are eating this grass. <laughs> and I'm like, really? This is where you came from so early in the morning to see which sheep eats which grass? Is this the Israel Defense Force? This is what you're doing, you know? And it's fascinating that a lot of, you know, people who identify as Israelis do pay taxes for the military to do this, like waste resources on abusing another community and a shepherd or like regulating illegal settlements and illegal posts. And I also find it amazing that you can't use the word apartheid or a lot of people scream at you if you use it when there's definitely two systems for two people, right? If Omel, who's an illegal settler, could get the protection of the military, while the Palestinian shepherd is at risk because he's afraid to go with his sheep. <laughs> like, it's just, how is yeah. that not, you know, apartheid? No, obviously, the, the, the soldiers are obviously there to watch the settlers and settlers only. There is no... To protect them, I mean, not watch except, them more than Yeah, to, to protect them, but also to help them, you yeah. know? You, you see, you have, you can see videos of, of settlers throwing stones and the army is walking with them and shooting mm -hmm. tear gas. It happened two weeks ago, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, also in the Syria. I mean, it's crazy. They are working together. It doesn't make any sense. People pay for it. Yeah, the taxes, in the end of the day, the taxes are paying for this apartheid. There is apartheid from the river to the sea. It's just different kind of laws from different groups of people Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're Palestinians of 48 who have an Israeli passport, the West Bank, Gaza, diaspora, and so on, Jerusalemites, yeah? But mm -hmm. it's just different kind of rules in order to maintain the supremacy of the Jewish people. Wow, yeah. I mean, these are important issues for our listeners to learn about, and they're always painful because... I always, you know, always with encountering human cruelty and kind of just indifference, I find myself speechless, you know, even though I feel like the best reaction is to scream at them um, or express it uh, out loud. Um, and I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Your activism is very important. Thank you for being involved in this and sharing this story with me. And I know that this comes at a cost, right? going against the stream, going against how we were raised, going against our communities, our families can come at a cost. So I wanted to ask you kind of what 
what are the challenges that you're facing on daily basis from, you know, closed ones to you, systematic challenges since you refused to join, you know, being the military? Could you explain to us or tell us more about um, that aspect of uh, your activism? Sure. So first of all, I haven't served this, the army, so I, and it's mandatory, it's duty, you cannot not serve. So I'm already a traitor. <laughs> Let's start with that. <laughs> now top that with the fact I'm openly saying I'm a non-Zionist Jew. I'm a double traitor. Top that with the fact that I'm using the words, that I'm using the, the, the truth, settler colonialism, apartheid, oppression, and so on. People just losing it. <laughs> and they don't like it. They, they hate me. Uh, usually it's like, okay, so why do you live here? So go and live in Gaza, uh, go get raped in Gaza. Uh, yeah, I, I wish they will kill you in Gaza. I don't know why they always sent me to Gaza. Like, I wonder, you know, and they always tell me, yeah, so why don't you just live there? And this kind of reactions, I get it also from society and in my inbox and my DM on Instagram and so on, but also uh, at home, to be honest. It's also a question I've been asked a few times. So, so why don't you just go uh, to live in Gaza or Ramallah? I, I'm sure they would love you there, you know? And <laughs> so it's, it, at the moment, uh, the cost is only a uh, mental cost. It's only messages. And I mean, I haven't experienced physical violence, although it, it is something that really, really scares me, mm -hmm. but I haven't faced uh, physical violence due to my uh, political activism. But this, it, it, of course, it, it's hard. It's hard and sometimes it's, it's just killing me and, and it's causing me a lot of questions about what's my place here, who am I, my self-determination and everything. But in the end of the day, I know that it's a small price to pay for the cause. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is, I know that I'm, I'm on the right side, I'm on the right way. And I know that the Palestinian struggle, the struggle for liberation is, the, is, a, is a struggle for justice. And as long as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm confident in my way and, and, I, and I am because I know the truth now and, and I've been learning about it so much and I know I'm on the right way. So it is hard, it's hard, it's painful, but there is nothing I can do because I can I could not change my ideology. I could not change my way of thinking. I cannot uh, suddenly say, okay, yeah, you know what? There is a difference between humans and one worth more than the other. No, it will not happen. And this is it, you know? I'm sorry to hear that you're receiving these messages, but I'm not um, surprised. The funniest is always when people tell me, uh, you're a self-hating Jew, you're not a real Jew, you're that, you're that, you're anti-Semitic. Have you heard about the Holocaust? And that's, of course, it's ignorant, mm -hmm. but I hate that because there is nothing that I hate more than racism and anti-Semitism. Now, mm -hmm. I'm also an activist against anti-Semitism, and I'm sure I've been doing a much better work against anti-Semitism than all of these people all of their life, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's just so, have you heard about the Holocaust? Oh yeah, I heard, 
<laughs> yes, of course I heard, and it's very present in my heart. And the way I'm acting, it's because this is the lesson I learned from the Holocaust. This is the lesson I learned from the history of my family. I, I, this is the lesson. We, we must stop this oppression. We cannot oppress anyone and mm -hmm. we should always fight against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's an amazing point to make that you, you, know, you can't be free if your freedom is based on the oppression of others. Mm -hmm. and order for true freedom to be achieved and just we need justice for everyone and equality for everyone uh regarding to, to be honest uh, and war to be honest my grandfather he escaped nazi germany just be, be, a bit before the holocaust like really started he mm -hmm. ran away to palestine as a refugee mm -hmm. he ran away to palestine as a refugee he later on became a settler yeah he did um, because he joined um, the Haganah, but at first he came here as a refugee, and 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 my grandmother and grand grandmother uh, were in Bergen-Belsen camp. I mean, it's not that it's exactly what we need to learn from our history as the Jewish people, who mm -hmm. have been moving from one place to another always, and have been oppressed, and have been, you know, they had to escape so many times. That we should know better than everyone what it is to live under oppression. So, you know, this is the lesson everybody should learn from the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So, Kohav, since you reflected on the challenges you're facing on your work, what would you recommend or say to new activists, young? activists who are just coming to their political consciousness, who are just discovering their sense of activism and their drive towards justice. So what, what kind of uh, advice do you give them? How should they handle these challenges? How should they approach the obstacles that society and their close family members and loved ones will place in front of them? Okay, so first of all, I will say, seek for the truth. Look for the truth, learn from, from Palestinians as well. Learn about the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian history, listen and center Palestinian voices. Now, the way will not be so easy. Obviously it won't, especially if you are a Jewish man or woman who lives here in this land. You know, it won't be easy because our society is really, really brainwashed and really, really protective but know that you are on the right side that you are looking for justice and i promise you that i i really i promise you that every time you would feel hurt and feel like an alien or feel outside know that that it's just you are on you see the the the, the things as they are you see the truth so you there is nothing like there is nothing we can do you know, there is the truth, and if we are part of it, then we are part of it, and we should just use the words and, and, and to look at the reality as it is. Everything that you are afraid of, just do it. If you are afraid about the term apartheid, and you are afraid to recognize the fact that it's apartheid, just do it. Just learn about it, learn why it is an apartheid, and you feel much more confident, and, and just have knowledge have knowledge it's so it it will bring you so much power and 
don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And whenever it's hard, just remember that, you know, you are doing the right thing. And, and one day history will judge us. And one day someone will ask, oh, wow, what have you been doing while this fucked up situation happened? Um, and while the Israeli occupation was, you know, and the Israel colonial, one day it will happen and we will be so happy, so much happier that we are acting against that because this is uh, the struggle of free Palestine. It's, it's for everyone. It's the struggle for liberation. Whether you are queer or gay or a woman, if you are a feminist, you must be pro-Palestine. You know, I don't see uh, how can it happen the other way around, unless it's like white feminism. And don't get, don't <laughs> let me start on that. <laughs> this is a great advice, and thank you very much for agreeing to uh, be interviewed for the podcast and sharing your fascinating story with us. Uh, I just want to give you some time to add anything if you want to add, if you forgot anything, or a few things, you know, if you have a book recommendation for our listeners. So this is the time for you. I would uh, recommend to learn from Ilan Pape. Mm-hmm. He's a Jewish historian. He teaches about the history of Palestine, about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So this information is also available in Hebrew and he really, really helped me and he's a very, very nice guy. That's one. And I would also recommend, you know, the only way forward for peace, you know, it's, we said justice, but we need to, to recognize and take responsibility. We need to decolonize, you know? Mm-hmm. So we have to do that in order to continue and live here, we have to do that in order to have hope and just open your eyes and open your ears and just, yeah, and succeed <laughs> and be active. Yeah, <laughs> be active. I think this is a great point to end on. I'm sure we'll talk again in the near future. Uh, thank you again. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Bye. Bye-bye.